Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Some Assembly Required, Chapter 4. This is Temptations from the Wilderness 2, Lenten Writing Experiment 1994, packaged together as a novella called Some Assembly Required, a neo-surrealist forsaking a habit for Lent. So far in this process, these 40 individual writing styles that are being stitched together have included things like recipes, a multiple-choice test, a portion of a newspaper article, overheard, eavesdropped even, conversations between two people at a dinner, pieces of a journal, dialogue in terms of just the simple act of getting directions when you're lost, and even what we might call the transcript from a movie review show with two critics arguing with each other. More recently, a more traditional form of fiction in the form of adventure. And the transcript, for want of a better word, of the notes of radio as I think it should be, a pirate-type radio station that plays all things the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there is more yet to come, starting this time with stand-up comedy, a genre where part of this was previously shared in Inappropriate Conversations number 52. That would have been April of 2011, and it's fitting that this particular chapter of this reading of the novella, Some Assembly Required, is timing out such that it might be released in the week of April Fool's Day this year as well, in 2020. This chapter, like many before it, contains explicit language. Here is chapter four. Lights fully dim after, so that's what they mean by the expression walking the beat, follow a spot. Offended? I don't understand. Who who have I offended? The cop? The reporter? Ladies and gentlemen, I have somehow offended the gentleman in the third row with my innocent little story. Now maybe he is a police officer or reporter. If so, he didn't come here tonight prepared in any way to laugh at himself. That's sad. In any event, let me assure you, I didn't intend any offense. At least not at this point in my routine. However, if Officer Winchell there is going to leave offended with a negative opinion of me as a performer, then I feel obligated to give him a true story with which to take offense. I don't see any other option. So, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, ladies in particular, let me apologize in advance for this foray into the life and times of V8 Nate. Nicknames were pretty common on my college dormitory floor. Sometimes an entire night could go by without anyone being called by proper name. It was Sledge here, Moe there, and Firecrotch over there. Most names weren't ambiguous or arbitrary, including V8 Nate. His real name was Nathan. It would be better for all of us if I didn't reveal his last name for reasons that will soon be obvious. Nathan had the world's most incredible collection of men's magazines. He was a subscriber to more of these rags than I even knew existed. I'm not talking about Playboy and Penthouse. He got them, but he regarded them as more wallpaper than a real magazine. No, every month, 
My mail would bring a letter from home, an unwanted credit card offer, and the monthly record club deal. His brought him swank, knave, hustler, wee, crotch shots, you name it, he got it. As I mentioned, he viewed your run-of-the-mill adult magazine as wallpaper fodder. Before I finally moved across the hall, he had transformed the largest corner, the one without a closet, window, or door, into what I called the Wall of Shame. Every other row was a year of Playboy centerfolds, followed by the corresponding year of Penthouse. For his closet and the ceiling above his bed, he reserved what he regarded as the true porn. Now, I don't want to come off as a prude here. At 18 years old, first year away from home, etc., etc., I initially didn't mind the extra study materials Nathan provided. But I wasn't naive enough to presume that my homework would fit in with his lifestyle. One day, while reading the cartoons, I swear, Mom, I was just reading the cartoons, I saw something so offensive that I simply had to share it with the group. The cartoon pictured a woman lying on the bed, minstrelly bleeding on the sheets. On the floor, a used tampon was staining the carpet. A man at her feet was wiping blood off his face. The caption read, Gosh, I could have had a V8. The vegetable juice people, who no doubt would be offended, have no cause for complaint. Anyone old enough to remember their annoying series of commercials will understand where this scatological pun came from. I mean, years of watching a commercial protagonist look up from a morning cup of coffee and exclaim, Gosh, I could have had a V8! That inspired sarcasm from sources much more credible than penthouse cartoonists. Nevertheless, one person in our dorm room was not offended by the cartoon in the least. You guessed it, very, very sharp, man. Do you do, you do this for a living? <laughs> Switch to Oki accent for the Nate voice. What, you boys ain't earned your red wings yet? Nathan asked, and he proceeded to tell us a story. Nate grew up in the small town of Sealing, Oklahoma. Population? Well, I've got a bigger crowd here, thank God. His sister, who was three years older, went to Southwestern State University in Weatherford. At about an hour away, visiting her was more than a mere road trip, but she was close enough for a weekend visit. Many a weekend during Nate's sexually active senior year was spent there, cruising the strip, picking up girls, and consuming ridiculous amounts of alcohol. One morning, Nate woke up in his sister's extra bedroom, shocked to find blood on his sister's satin sheets. His initial panic over how, it, how much it would cost to replace her linens was erased by the sight of blood all over his face in the bathroom mirror. Nate was still a little drunk and rebounding off a night he could not remember. He checked his mouth, looking to see if he'd lost a tooth or something. Finally, he concluded that he was looking at a bigger mess than any tooth could cause. Then, upon careful consideration, he realized that the bloodstains on his face were spread in an unusual symmetry. Then he remembered. Not the girl, of course. She was long gone, and he wasn't inclined to recall her name. He did, however, remember her idea, and it was her idea. I believe Nate when he said this. It's not like Nate was an honest guy. He wasn't. Rather, you could count on Nathan to take credit for any sexual notions, so his willingness to credit her was unusual enough to be genuine. Nate, like most people on the planet, was initially sickened by his sad state of affairs. 
Yet, in a twist we soon learned was ever so typical of his twisted brain, he made peace with his actions. His rationale. One, he lived to tell the story. Two, the girl didn't think any less of him than she already did. And three, he got some action out of it. For Nate, that one-two-three punch was more than enough, more than any sense of decorum could possibly overcome. The only person who suffered any for Nate's precarious discovery was his sister. You see, Nate's efforts at stain removal proved fruitless. On the other hand, I don't think anybody should start feeling too sorry for the fate of Nate's sibling. For one thing, she knew what he was up to during his southern swings into town. In fact, she provided him the extra bedroom with the satin sheets for just such an eventuality. More to the point, though, Nate's elder was indirectly responsible for creating this sexual Frankenstein in the first place. Three years earlier, back at home in Sealing, Nate returned home from a summer soccer practice to find one of his sister's senior class friends watching soap operas in the living room of his family's modest three-bedroom home. The friend of the family told young Nate that his sis would be right back any minute, and sis invited her to stay so that she could keep the both of them up to date on the daytime dramatics. Nate thought nothing of it, and proceeded to the shower. To hear Nathan tell this story, his sister's friend was, of course, the most sexually attractive girl ever to live in western Oklahoma. He couldn't, or wouldn't, describe for us the particulars of this so-called unbelievable body, a fact very much in conflict with the typical morning after with V8 Nate. With this one exception, he was never short on details. To make a long story short, Nate's sister was, truth be told, in not-so-nearby Clinton, trying to test out of freshman-level biology classes. Meanwhile, her friend was revealing this fact, and quite a few others, to the 15-year-old boy during the course of a long, wet shower. A very different boy toweled off that afternoon. The kind of boy who would shrink at the thought of menstrual cunnilingus was washed forever down the drain. Those of us who weren't shocked by his shower story weeks earlier were, needless to say, shocked by the climate of his Weatherford tale. We had long ago given up the notion that he was pulling our legs. During the first two weeks of school, Nate had claimed that he had betted six fellow freshmen and one sophomore, and one of them repeatedly. Of course, we challenged the particulars of his testimony, but circumstantially, the times and places of his deposition seemed to match perfectly. So in hopes of shutting him up once and for all, we bugged him. Being the good roommate that I am, I borrowed a voice-activated tape recorder, set it, and left it below his bed when we went to the bars that night. Much to our dismay, the next morning confirmed every nuance of Nate's play-by-play. -play. Worse yet for us would-be debunkers, the girl who came to visit was Gina, the very girl he had seen repeatedly. Not only did we lose our opportunity to expose a liar who was leading us on with his just-read-it-in-forum stories, we also lost our opportunity to deny that he must be doing something right. Gina seemed a clear indication that V8 Nate was doing something quite well. Most of us wrote off Nate's success to as a credit to his debasement. After all, he was willing to do anything. We were consistently reminded of how far he would go as he would occasionally turn a co-ed's not-a-good-time-for-me line into a vile and aggressive come-on. I, on the other hand... Since that one day, one day, V8 Nate would get slammed. I didn't have to wait long. Two weekends after our regrettable tape recording scam, Debbie came to town. 
it's hard to imagine a guy like Nate with a girlfriend, arguably in a swinging couples kind of way. Gina might have qualified as one, but Debbie was a hometown girlfriend. For Debbie, maintaining a relationship with Nate did give her a college man connection. Edmund was far enough removed from ceiling to give Nate room for debauchery, but it was close enough for Debbie to do Edmund the same way Nate had done Weatherford the year before. We were left largely to guess about Debbie's appeal to Nate. She was more or less as desirable as the mixed bag of beauty he had been picking from in college. Her family wasn't rich and there were no prospects for marriage. As far as we knew, she didn't have any blackmail evidence to use against him. The process of elimination left us with two probable choices. One, she knew some serious tricks in bed. Or two, he really loved her. Debbie's pending visit posed a problem for Nate. Namely, in with Deb and out with Gina. Take it as a given that Gina didn't take the news lying down, even though that's how she received the news and I've got a tape at home to prove it. Of course, Nate didn't take Debbie's pending arrival for granted either. He left the wall of shame untouched, but he did remove the action posters from the ceiling, leaving only one offensive poster hanging inside his closet door. He spent the remaining two days shaking Gina off. Although sleeping with her for several days of his first two, three weeks in school certainly distinguished her from V8 Nate's other prey, he coldly assured her that two weeks with her couldn't compare to the two years with Debbie. I was the first person on the floor to see Debbie. Tim, the neighbor across the hall, with whom I'd hoped to swap rooms, was waiting with me in our room for Nate's slow and steady walk down the hall. While bringing a girl into a dorm was generally a source of notoriety, bringing a hometown high school girl was a risky venture, far too risky for any sudden impulsive movements. So Nate approached us as if he was navigating through a minefield. As I have hinted, Tim and I were not particularly impressed. She seemed nice. She was generally attractive. Nevertheless, we were convinced that she must have known some serious tricks in bed conversational tone with Oki slang and then my serious voice. Debbie, he said, introducing us, this is Dave. Dave, I'd like you to meet Debbie. Pleasure to meet you, I told her. With the exception of Nate the Great here, I've never really met anyone from Ceiling. She said hello. We decided to skip dinner and go as a group to the bars. I left to round up the gang. At this point, I'm going to use some poetic license. You'll have to grant me two things. First, trust that I'm telling you a true story. Nothing, after all, could possibly be as offensive as the truth. Second, this moment where I'm departing from events I personally eyewitnessed was confirmed by both Nate and Debbie. So while I didn't hear their conversation, no tape recorders under the bed this time, we can take the content of the said conversation for granted. Debbie decided that she preferred Nate dressed in a purple polo shirt. Like me, he was part of those trendy high school purple polo clubs. What? Right, undeniably a bunch of yuppie bullshit. Thanks for sharing. Is there anything embarrassing from your high school years you'd like to bring up? No? Back to the subject at hand. Nate looked at her, looked at his closet, and looked back to Debbie. He was hoping to find a way to change her mind. More to the point, he was hoping to find a way of shielding her view from the Dirty Dykes magazine centerfold hung on the inside. I've got to tell you, not only did that poster take away some glamour that lesbianism might have fleetingly had, 
it was enough to make me want to reconsider many sexual questions. Generally speaking, you ask me to look at a picture of two women performing 69, and I'm likely to say okie dokie without much thought. These women, however, were two of the least attractive nudes I've ever seen. I'm not calling them ugly, they weren't fat or covered in zits or suffering from elephantitis. They just weren't pretty. I suppose the photographer was looking for a sandy look. However, it, they didn't look covered in sand so much as covered with silt. It was nothing more than a huge picture of two nasty, filthy lesbians licking each other. The Dirty Dyke Centerfold had taken its publication name a tad too seriously. Debbie opened his closet door and Nate sprouted wings and flew across the room. He landed directly between her and the backside of the door and spread his arms behind his head in a huge, fake yawn. There was a chance that the bright-eyed small-town girl might have opened the closet, removed the shirt, and closed it without noticing anything at all. But not with Nate's sudden display of panic. Insert the Oki slang voice for uh, Nate. Simple falsetto will do for Debbie. What's that picture behind you? She asked. What? There's a picture of something inside your closet door. On the inside of my door, he said, innocently enough. Oh my God! She exclaimed. Mary, mother of Jesus! Nate exclaimed, feigning shock. That Dave! That Dave! He's really gone too far this time. Your roommate did this? Don't be upset, Nate replied. It's just a practical joke. Boys will be boys, you know. He's just pulling a fast one on me in hopes of disrupting our night together. He's been getting a little tired sleeping on Tim's floor. Why has he been sleeping on Tim's floor? Debbie asked, naively failing to notice Nate's inadvertent revelation. Oh, he hasn't, he hasn't, but we've been teasing him a lot about the fact that he's going to be sleeping on the floor. Damn nice of him, really, he said with a smile. Debbie returned his devilish grin. Considering what a sport Dave's being, I think we can forgive this tasteless prank, don't you? Debbie agreed. The two most important lessons to be learned here are, one, although she wasn't a horse's ass, Debbie could be led to water and persuaded to drink. Two, nobody could surpass Nate for quick-thinking, results-oriented bullshit. We weren't two steps inside the club before Tim identified Gina. He didn't have to be told what to do and immediately kicked his damage control efforts into high gear. While the gang and I accompanied the happy couple to the upstairs table, Tim and his roommate formed a wedge between Gina and the group. Giorgio's was one of those pathetic early 80s dance clubs. The beer was cheap, the crowd was happening, but the music was never ever good. How we sustained ourselves all those months with no rock and roll on a Friday night was hard to fathom. Worse, the place didn't even have the new wave thing going for it. I mean, a little tainted love or even Der Commissar would have been a welcome change from the nightly doses of Whippet Baby by the Daz Band and, of course, many a thrilling tune by Michael Jackson. Further adding to the irony, none of us danced. I mean, some of us did. Some of us, some of us even parlayed a couple of dances into some serious action. But truth be known, we sat on the upper floor to avoid the dancers below. Soon enough, Tim reported back. Much like a couple of sorority girls, Tim whispered into Nate's ear and the two decided they had to use the toilet together. This forgettable moment in an otherwise unforgettable night was a masterful example of sex role reversal. The content of the urgent talks? Gina was claiming to be pregnant. 
Tim was convinced it was too soon for her to know. Expressing an embarrassing level of experience with home pregnancy testing, Tim assured Nate that Gina was lying. Nate didn't care. Either way, he wasn't interested. Armed with more advanced information than he needed, Nate returned to our table. Our second round of pitchers and first round of popcorn had just arrived when Gina finally broke through the security net room 273 had been weaving around our table. Insert female voice with a higher falsetto than Debbie. Nate, I need to tell you something, Gina said, catching all of us off guard. With the volume of the music blaring over the disco system, Nate tried to ignore her. Nate! Nate, she yelled, grabbing his shirt sleeve. By now, all eyes, including Debbie's, were on her. Nate was trapped. Nate, she said, tears welling up in her eyes. I'm pregnant! Despite the booming beat of the barquets, despite the cacophony of conflicting conversation from nearby tables, despite the atmosphere thick with perfume and smoke, Gina had seemingly silenced the world. With our table literally frozen on the cold concept she dropped on him, all eyes were on V8 and 8. Well, congratulations! That's just great! Mike told me you guys had been trying. I can't be more happy for you, an effusive Nate exclaimed. If I had some cigars, I'd be passing them around right now. You simply have to tell Mike to come by sometime. We'll split a pitcher in his honor. Gina was speechless. You haven't met my girlfriend, Nate said, emphasis on the term girlfriend. Gina, fighting off tears, stood in disbelief. Gina, this is Debbie. Debbie, Gina. You two may not have met. Gina married Mike this summer. Nate told Debbie, laying it on thicker and heavier. You remember Mike, the goalie for our summer league team a couple years ago? They were high school sweethearts too, just like us. Debbie was placated. Gina simply disappeared, no doubt in tears. Quite logically, we presumed she had slithered into the cracks of the sidewalk and dribbled home through the drainage system. Nate was so satisfied with his performance that he was mentally dusting off the shelf for the inevitable Oscar. Of course, we couldn't have been more wrong. Maybe it's just my luck, like a karma that follows me from dance hall to dance hall. But I've never spent more than two hours in one of those bars without the disc jockey making at least a minor brain fart. Either they'll repeat the same song unintentionally in a series, or they'll announce one track while playing the intro to another, or, and this one is my favorite, this one's the cardinal sin, the one that Disco Bob absolutely cannot forgive, the grand pause. Now those of you unlearned in the nuances of classical music may not be familiar with the term grand pause. In blues, we call it stop time. In urban jazz, it's breakdown, or it was until rap got a hold of that expression. In dance clubs, we call it the stupid DJ forgot to start the next track on time and left a group of sweaty dancers staring foolishly at each other for a couple of seconds. Not a scientific term, I know, which is why I decided to go with Grand Pause. The other irony I've noticed when these moonlighting DJs fell up is how often the sudden stop in the music brings a sudden stop to all conversation as well. It's as though real living people carrying on with vital active conversations were truly nothing more than a laugh track for the pop singers. Only once in my life have I seen this connection. The one between the song stopping and the conversation stopping failed to follow through. 
The sole exception was Gina. She was so upset upon returning to our table to reprise her confrontation with Nate that she probably didn't hear the music playing. She certainly didn't hear the music end. And in a deathly moment of unexpected silence, Gina returned to our table and yelled, Forget any falsetto, buddy. Say it loud, say it proud. Nate, you licked my pussy and I liked it! Grand pause for you here. If it plays well, shake your head ruefully at the crowd. Cover the time with some math. 2x plus 6 equals 8. 2x equals 8 minus 6. 2x equals 2. x equals 2 divided by 2. x equals 1. You know you shouldn't laugh at the misfortune of others, don't you know? Um, Of course, that's what everyone in the bar was doing. At least everyone upstairs and most of the people down the back hall. Somehow Gina picked that one magic moment to scream her fool head off. My testimony here is based upon hearing only, because I didn't see a whole lot after Gina blurted her true feelings to the world. Laughing so hard I couldn't see straight, I tipped over my chair, crashed against the table behind us, and ended up flat on the floor below Debbie. The next thing I saw was V8 Nate crawling out of the bar on his hands and knees. And Debbie? I can't speak for the rest of the weekend, but a month later she was back in town, hitting the bars with Nate and the gang. In fact, things were so firmly back to normal that Tim spent the weekend sleeping on the floor of my newly acquired room as a personal courtesy to his new roommate, V8 Nate. Pause here for a drink of water, even if you're not thirsty. I only told that story so you'd understand this one, and I'm only telling this one for the sake of Officer What's-His-Name, who seems to have left the building. Once the new freshmen got more accustomed to one another, our activities began to exceed mere studying and partying. A couple of us started attending a group called Campus Christians, formed by a sophomore from our sister dorm. Now, sister dorm only meant that we shared a cafeteria. For the most part... Sisterly feelings were by far outnumbered by more amorous ones. But not when it came to Mary. Mary was a very special girl. She was a good student, well-liked by all who knew her, and she had enormous patience. I'd never seen her angry. Even when upset by events she encountered, she almost always approached them with a problem-solving attitude. You hear the expression from time to time about the woman you wouldn't want to bring home to mom? Well, Mary was exactly the opposite. She was plain, very simple, but not quite homely. Mom would have loved her. Even within our group, the nickname Virgin Mary began to circulate about her because she never dated, and she seemed to be a personification of purity. Nevertheless, I had a sense that beneath the surface, Mary had the potential to be stunningly attractive. I'd compare her to the high school classmate you meet on campus two years later and suddenly realize, hey, she grew a butt. That's nice. Of course, if you said it to her that way, she'd probably take it as an insult. So instead, you just say something less threatening, like, hey, you look great. Good curves. Then allow her to be confused, thinking you've made an unwarranted reference to her breasts. But I digress. Needless to say, we were all considerably shocked to see V8 Nate coming down the hall one weekday night with Virgin Mary under his arm. Nate's humiliating experience at the hands of Gina months earlier had not changed him, nor had the so-called maturation process college allegedly brings on. 
In fact, he still updated the wall of shame, and his inner closet was continually adorned with the dirty dykes or something worse. All of us immediately sensed a disastrous clash of cultures. If she had come to save his soul, I thought she is going to be lucky to save her own dignity. We didn't do what loyal floor mates typically do for an incoming companion, namely set up a quasi-abusive receiving line. Instead, most of us headed for the hills, expecting lightning to strike us all dead sooner rather than later. Tim and I, on the other hand, loaded the voice-activated tape recorder, shoved it under Nate's bed, and hung out nonchalantly in the hallway. Use a prim falsetto for Mary, reprise Nate's voice. Is this some kind of a joke? she asked, in a tone of voice I'd never heard from her before. What? Is this really your room? Well, yeah. Don't tell me those are your... your... pictures on the wall. Um, no. Those are the pictures of Miss August, September, October, November... Shut up! Just shut up! I don't want to hear it. I have never seen such an unbelievably sexist, insensitive, dastardly display of of debauchery. I can't even think straight. How could you hang those things all over your walls like that? Nate was silent at first, but you, you could just hear him shaking his head at her. Tape, he answered. Well, that set her off. The one person I'd met in college that I considered totally unflappable had been totally flapped, flapped up the head something fierce, and she was letting loose to compensate for years of self-control. As far as we could tell, Nate just stood there and took the medicine for a while. No doubt, V8 Nate was looking for an opportunity to turn her anger to his sexual advantage. He might have been considering whether she was on the rag. You just have to know Nate to understand. Meanwhile, Mary was laying it on thicker and heavier. Every fifth word was offensive. Every sixth word was disgusting. She managed to incorporate her fair share of sick, perverted, and degrading as well. And at one point, I wondered whether the tape's 30-minute side was going to contain her monologue. If she had planned to convert him to the flock with some kindness and understanding, her approach had now fully switched to fire and brimstone. After she passed the phrases offensive and disgusting for the 15th time, Nate interrupted her. Listen, listen, shut up and listen, he said, getting a word in edgewise. I think you made your point loud and clear, ma'am, but you haven't even bothered to ask me for my opinion. Okay, she said, finally chilling. I'm sorry I've crossed the line with you somehow. Frankly, I didn't think you'd be so upset. I've had dozens of women in this room this year, and you are the first to complain. How many came back? Hell, how many have I asked to come back? Babe, when I call, they come, usually repeatedly. Anyway, you know what I find sick and offensive? I find sick and offensive your misuse of the term sick and offensive. The human body, especially the female human body, and extra especially the stark naked female human body, is not offensive in any way. It's flat out beautiful. In fact, I agreed to take you here tonight on a hunch that your naked female human body was worth getting worked up about. Care to prove me wrong? No, I'm leaving. Fine with me, but I'd prefer it if you didn't leave with such a terrible misconception about me. What do you mean? You think I'm a guy who doesn't have any real set of values. You think I wouldn't recognize something that was ugly, perverted, and degrading if it smacked me upside the head, am I right? She was silent, but apparently nodded. Before you go, then, allow me a chance to prove you wrong. Now, let me see. 
You find Miss March offensive. I don't understand that. She loves children. She considers herself a romantic. She even lists the Bible among her favorite books. You're missing the boat, lady, if you think this girl's offensive just because she can't keep her satin teddy over her breasts very well and she's not wearing any panties. Let me see if I got this straight. This is sick. This is perverted. Yes. You find this offensive. Yes. You got a lot to learn, lady. That's not offensive, he said, apparently sweeping a hand toward his wall of shame. Now that, he said, to the creaking sound of his closet door opening wide, that is offensive. Mary screamed like the great horror actresses of old. Her shriek, plus the sound of her colliding with Nate's door, brought most of us out of our bedrooms. Even the ones only wearing underwear shamelessly ventured down the hall to investigate the scene of the crime. After bouncing off the door she tried to run through without opening, Mary fumbled at the handle, threw open the door, and rushed into the hall. Immediately she was surrounded by a dozen men or so, most in their underwear. Again she screamed as if the specter of Vincent Price was clutching her by a leg and pulling her into a pit filled with unspeakable horror. We can presume Virgin Mary hadn't seen many men in their underwear at such a proximity. Pushing her way through the crowd, she ran off the floor, down the stairs, and all the way across the parking lot to her dormitory. From my window, you could still see her running and a trace of her figure careening through the lobby toward her elevator. The moral to this story, and I'm sorry my heckler isn't around to hear this, the moral of this story is be careful not to be so easily offended. If someone wants to repulse you, it may prove as simple as opening a door. Mr. Arthur? Mr. Arthur, a crowd of reporters called. Trey was pleased by the attention being maintained through the world premiere. Yes, he said, pointing to a reporter. Are you concerned about the attacks against Donald Trump in the play? Why should I be concerned? Well, you're saying some borderline slanderous things. I haven't said anything about Mr. Trump. The reporter looked exasperated. Now my character did. The senator from Missouri said a couple things that the Donald Trump in my play would, would have found most uncharitable. So a potential libel or defamation suit never entered your thinking? Well, of course not. Anything you say on the floor of the U.S. Senate is privileged information. You should know that from journalism school. That senator can say whatever he pleases without any concern because our system of government was designed to give elected officials the freedom to think aggressively from the Capitol without fear of reprisal. To what degree did the Sullivan case play a role in your decision to express these views through a senator and about a man as well-known as Trump? Another reporter asked. I'm not sure I follow your question. Times versus Sullivan? Regarding public figures? Did you feel more at ease making Donald Trump a target knowing he was a public figure? Me? Or Senator Hansen? Trey caught the reporter off guard by making the distinction. What's the difference? The reporter responded. Well, for one, I'm not a United States senator from Liberty, Missouri. Then you, I'm, I'm asking one writer to another how much you use Time versus Sullivan as a buffer zone. So you're asking me about public figure stipulations? Right. As a writer, particularly as a fiction writer, those distinctions mean precious little to me. So you weren't using Trump's notoriety as a shield to defend your attacks? He asked, skeptically. What am I doing, teaching journalism law 101? Most of the reporters laughed. 
Listen, you can't lose a libel suit for expressing an opinion. This is fiction, people. Now, maybe Donald Trump won't like my story ideas. Maybe he won't care for the opinions some of my characters express. I, for one, hope he's amused. Amusement, after all, is a luxury that should offset the occasional drawbacks of fame and fortune. Either way, my work is an opinion expressed through fiction. Furthermore, the antagonist in my story is expressing an opinion to his fellow senators. And yet, even furthermore, the said opinion is privileged speech. Case closed. What do you want to talk about now, guys? Split infinitives? Trey quipped. The jokes aside, Mr. Arthur, the first reporter said, it does seem to some of us that you are ducking responsibility by blaming your scathing attack on Mr. Trump on the ideas of a character when you are responsible for all the thoughts and ideas of that character. I don't believe I'm hearing this, Trey said, showing signs of impatience. I suppose I was naive to expect an interview with a set of writers. Instead, all I'm looking at are reporters. You haven't been writing long enough if you believe characters are incapable of having their own thoughts. Worse yet, I'd bet every person in this room has cried censorship at least once in the face of a First Amendment concern. Well, Senator Hansen thought something. I permitted him the freedom to speak what was on his mind. It was legal, due to privilege, and no one got hurt. Trump is a much bigger man than you guys seem to acknowledge. Several reporters began clamoring to interrupt. I'm, I'm not finished. How many of you remember the body count controversy from a few years ago? You know, the rapper Ice-T formed a hard rock band, delivered a handful of searing, controversial diatribes. Cop killer? One of the reporters said. That's right. I bet you can't name another song on the album. No substantive response. Except some what does this have to do with... I'll, I'll tell you what. A lot of people, including some police groups right here in New York City started threatening to sue Ice-T if a police officer was killed and they could link the criminal and the album in any way. The threat went something like this. Thug kills police officer. Thug owns latest Ice-T record. Detectives prove Thug once owned body count. District attorney pleads down the Thug in exchange for his testimony that body count caused the crime. Officer's family sues Ice-T. Well, that's absolutely deplorable. I'm not defending Ice-T. I thought Cop Killer was a banal song that hurt the best the album because it lacked the subtlety of the record's best moments. What I will defend is the right of Ice-T to choose whether or not his character speaks without intimidation. Since Ice-T recognized that the psychopathic character from his album was going to say something, Ice-T had a right, and perhaps even an obligation, not to censor that character's opinion. If the character's view was deplorable, and it was, that Ice-T was doing justice by allowing the character to reveal his flaws. What's your point? The reporter asked. Characters don't always say what writers want them to say, and it's ignorant to presume otherwise. Ice-T's choice was to put him in or leave him out. Changing his cop killer's point of view, though, was never an option. And regardless of the flaws I find in Ice-T's work, I respect the man for recognizing the right of his character to an integrity of opinion. What does this have to do with your play? Uh, not much, Trace said, laughing at his diversion. Except this. I find it funny that the same press that failed to stand up for Ice-T and Body Count then is now trying to pin the same tail on the donkey who stands before you now. His joke received mixed laughter. All this talk about the senator. Doesn't anybody want to talk about his mistress? Frankly, she interests me more than he does. Her motivations do seem significantly more complex a reporter said, trying to shift gears. 
Yes, but complex and plainly simple at the same time. He said he doesn't want to marry. He just wants to pop my cherry. Too young to date. I really need it, but I'm too young to date. I gotta have it. What is this? Monica asked, offended by the song. I think they're called D-Day, Jimmy said. It's an old song. West Coast, if I were guessing. It sucks, she said. It doesn't suck. Too young to date now. It does change it. Change it. Okay. I I didn't complain through three consecutive songs by Lenny and the Family Kravitz, you know. Well, how could you? They're cool. He's so retro. By that you mean backward, Jimmy said. They mean the same thing. No, one's an insult. Why don't you find that new community access radio, she said. AM? No, this is the new one on FM. Kind of an FM student station? Jimmy flipped through the channels. He failed at first to find anything but music and commercials. On the way back, though, he stopped near 100, hitting a moderator. Thanks for sticking with us. We are Talk Radio KNEW FM 99. As I said at the top of the show, our program today was organized in part by the Local League of Women Voters and the Oklahoma Multimedia Association. We'll be taking your calls at the top of the hour when both panelists will stay to answer questions. For now, though, we return to our debate on sexual behaviors and public policy with Andy Richardson of Focus on the Family's Broken Arrow chapter and Rochelle Lee of the Reproductive Rights Coalition, a local organization. It appeared during the break that you two were shoring up some common ground. That is correct. I think Andy and I do agree with how some of the information about the effectiveness of condoms is being misused in the area of disease prevention. But I I want him to tell it because the argument, and particularly the parachute analogy, is part of Focus on the Family's literature, not mine. Steve, Focus on the Family ran a series of public service announcements and advertisements last year. One was an aggressive attack on the notion of safe sex. Although many in our group feel that conventional wisdom about the danger of AIDS and other big marquee sexually transmitted diseases is highly exaggerative. The majority of us were willing to take the safe sex argument at face value for the sake of argument. We then took the argument that the danger of sexually transmitted disease required the use of condom and other barrier contraceptives to task. Our basic point was that abstinence is the true survival instinct in the face of such a life and death threat. Andy and I were talking earlier But both of us openly question whether recommended safe sex techniques would be practiced if one partner knew beyond a doubt that the other partner was carrying the HIV virus. I mean, would you? Well, this is is your discussion. I'm happy letting you two guys answer the questions. All laughed. Okay, I'll put my opinion on the line. I'm a single woman, so I can't and won't speak for what I might do if I learned that my husband was infected. But if I learned that somebody I was dating casually was carrying a potentially fatal STD, there's no way I'd trust my life to a piece of rubber. Rochelle is speaking wisely here. More importantly, though, I think she is speaking honestly. I would be shocked if very many people practicing so-called casual sex wouldn't feel the same way she does if they knew all the facts. What are the facts? The facts we have gathered only measure the effectiveness of condoms in the prevention of pregnancy 
And condoms fail anywhere from an unrealistic 10% to a perhaps overblown 30% of the time. I think the figures were one-sixth. Yes, but that's somewhere between 16 and 17%. These figures are acceptable to you, Ms. Lee? Well, certainly for the sake of argument. What my organization added to that argument, I think for the first time on a national level, is that this one in six failure rate measures pregnancy. A woman cannot get pregnant every day of the month. But sexually transmitted diseases don't take a day off. Right. Our argument was that safe sex was being used as a justification for promoting a contraceptive device that probably isn't safe half the time. Frankly, I'm surprised at how harmoniously our discussion is going between you two. Does Reproductive Rights Coalition share Mr. Richardson's view of condom ineffectiveness? Well, we do share his concerns. Our reasons include his observation about the statistically significant increase in pregnancies that would be caused by condoms if they were only tested during ovulation. This is why we recommend more than one method of birth control be used in conjunction with barrier devices. More troubling, though, is the fact that a virus, as in the case of HIV, is much smaller, maybe even smarter, if you will, than sperm. A flaw in the condom, or in the use of a condom, that may still block sperm probably wouldn't block many of the diseases the public health portion of our debate has focused upon. Tell them the parachute story. Our ads were directed to parents, persuading them to oppose condom distribution programs and to dig deeper into the things that their children are being taught. We compared the dangers of immature sexual relations, or, more to the point, sex outside of marriage, to diving out of an airplane. The safe sex crowd is telling our kids that they have nothing to fear if they just use this parachute known as a condom. Even Rochelle's group is very quick to push this parachute as the solution to our fear of skydiving. So all we have to do is make the stretch that unprotected intercourse equals skydiving? It may not be as much a stretch as you imply in some parts of the country. Either way, this inflammatory rhetoric isn't our invention. These ideas are quite amenable to our liberal counterparts. I suppose it is true that most of the protect-yourself rhetoric does come from organizations like Planned Parenthood. And mine. Our point was, what kind of parent is going to let his child go skydiving? in full knowledge of the fact that only five out of the six parachutes on the plane are going to open. To rephrase, how many parents would even entertain the risk of their child plunging to a grisly death in pursuit of a premature and pointless thrill? We embarked on this campaign in hopes of waking parents up. If you believe what you hear from liberals about the dangers of STDs, then how could you be silent about the importance of abstinence? How can you possibly allow something as misleading as a condom distribution program at school to carry on unchallenged? I stand by our campaign. We shouldn't allow the prevailing cultural wisdom, and I use those terms loosely, to trick our children into an act they may not live to regret. Here's why I wanted Andy to tell that story, Steve. Steve. 
I agree that condoms aren't as safe as some people say. I agree that sexual decisions must be made with the kind of careful consideration that only comes with maturity. But I'm not naive enough to think that every child is going to do exactly as he or she is told. In fact, unfortunately, we can presume the opposite is true. So where does that leave us? First, I'll tell you where it definitely doesn't leave us. We cannot afford to pull all contraceptive availability out of our society, not even out of the reach of our children. Focus on the family asks what kind of parents would let a child skydive without knowing the parachute has a solid chance of failing. Well, this is a parents-as-pimps logical fallacy. How? Precisely because it presumes that parents have some magical control that does not exist and hasn't for decades. Parents aren't piloting the plane in your analogy. In fact, they rarely, if ever, are fully informed about what experiences their children encounter. It's a fact of life. Most parents aren't even aware that their children are flying at all, much less which flights they take. So where does your argument take us? Well, focus on the family asks what kind of parent would let their child skydive. I ask what kind of parent, if the child started skydiving without permission, would tell that child to never, never use a parachute under any circumstances because sometimes they fail to open. It is seriously ludicrous to suggest that any parent would tell his child to take a head-first plunge out of an airplane without a parachute on. That is not what we are saying. Wrong, Andy. It's precisely what you are saying. The effort by groups like Focus on the Family to make sure kids are walled off from any access to birth control information is exactly the same thing as pushing them into a dangerous freefall without even a parachute to use if they cannot stop themselves from going over the edge. Jimmy slowed down his car, changed lanes, and signaled a left-hand turn signal before the light. What are you doing? Monica asked. Dropping by your house. Why? He turned up the radio. Listen for that telephone number, he said. I've got to call that show. Welcome to This Week in Gay. What is This Week in Gay, you say? Well, This Week in Gay was a podcast hosted by Anthony Anselmo that featured a cast of rotating participants. Each week, the participants would discuss major news items impacting the LGBT community. But after a few years, Anthony was ready to move on to some other priorities in his life. Since then, many of the participants and listeners have longed for the show's return. So we're happy to bring you This Week in Gay 2.0. In addition to the warning about explicit language, I probably should have made the disclaimer that not all the views of all the characters in this short story are represented with the views of the, of the author himself. But then again, the short story itself tries to make that point crystal clear right smack dab in the middle of this chapter four. Remember that this particular story was written as a Linton writing experiment in 1994, with the finishing organizational touches being done on April Fool's Day of that year, as a matter of fact. It's fascinating, and maybe even on some level a little bit disturbing, that a character named Donald Trump appears in these pages at all. One of my key considerations when trying to figure out how to share an eight-chapter novella 
over a series of podcasts was the different drummer aspect to it. If I was not or had not been successful at coming up with what I felt was a good enough different drummer for every single one of these chapters, I might not have proceeded down this course here in 2020 at all. But in this case, one of the things that jumped out at me was Representative Jackie Spear from Central California, Northern California. The first time I think I noticed who she was was when she had given a speech on the House Representative's floor about um, access to abortion, to contraceptive, to other medical services via Planned Parenthood, because early in that particular term of Congress, the Republican Party, who had taken the majority of the House at the time, was hell-bent on doing nothing else, frankly, if they couldn't first defund Planned Parenthood. I'll get to her quote on that topic, and on the topic of abortion more generally, in a moment. But first, as I often do with different drummer segments, let me introduce Jackie Spear via the Wikipedia route. She is an American politician who currently serves as a U.S. representative for California's 14th Congressional District. She served in Congress since 2008 as a member of the Democratic Party. She represents much of the territory that had been represented by her political mentor, Leo Ryan. One of the things about her story that I probably had heard off in the distance somewhere, or at least metaphorically off in the distance, that never really registered with me until just maybe this past year, somewhere along the line of a conversation around, about either gun violence or about terrorist extremists, or perhaps more likely about religious freedom, Jackie Spear shared once again the story of what happened to her when she accompanied her political mentor, Leo Ryan, on a fact-finding mission to Guyana to find out whether there was truth in some of the things they were hearing from their constituents in California about relatives of those constituents being abused or perhaps even held against their will in the Jonestown colony that Jim Jones established in Guyana. Wikipedia picks up here, saying that in 1978, while working as his aide, uh, Leo Ryan's aide, Spear survived five gunshot wounds she received when Ryan was assassinated during the Jonestown Massacre. Spear was part of this November 1978 fact-finding mission, organized to investigate allegations of human rights abuses by Jim Jones and his People's Temple followers, almost all of whom were American citizens who moved to Guyana with Jones in 1977 and 1978. Several members of the People's Temple ambushed the investigative team and others boarding a plane to leave Jonestown on November 18th of that year. Five people died, including Congressman Ryan. While trying to shield herself from rifle and shotgun fire behind small airplane wheels and other team members, Spear was shot five times and waited 22 hours before help arrived. That same day, over 900 members of the People's Temple died in Jonestown and in Georgetown, in a mass murder-suicide. One of the things I like the most about Spear, though, is what she has done since. Again, as I mentioned earlier, this was an aspect of this. Her, her victim of, of terrorist violence was something that either I did not know or that I quickly forgot and sort of relearned here in recent months. No, it's a little bit unusual. I might even say either reckless or brave to choose to name a sitting U.S. politician as a different drummer. It's not that I haven't named political figures before, but a lot of the political figures I've named before have been safe. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville, Thomas Paine, long dead, with a written legacy that speaks for themselves even if their behavior, in the case of Alexander Hamilton, 
was not always exemplary. So naming somebody who is still serving in Congress seems like a potentially risky move to me. Why do it? Well, one reason I did it was her response to the still to this day ongoing right wing conservative Christian hysteria over partial birth abortion from the floor of the House of Representatives several years ago, addressing this issue in a personal way, Spears said this. I was sitting up in my drab gown when the doctor returned to the room with the kind of solemn look that you never want to see on your doctor's face. There was nothing further to be done. The fetus would not survive. I felt like I was losing a part of my soul. I had let myself believe another beautiful child was on the way, but I was wrong. Steve held me close. Not only were we experiencing the unspeakable sense of loss, but with, a more, angu- with more anguish than I could imagine. I had to abort my pregnancy out of medical necessity. The crushing procedure, throughout which I was, again, sobbing, required dilating the cervix in order to extract the fetus. Ignorant, where vindictive opponents have attacked the, that procedure, one of the greatest tragedies of my life, as a partial birth abortion. Jackie Spear. This quote coming from her relatively recent book, Undaunted, Surviving Jonestown, Summoning Courage, and Fighting Back. What Spear, in this quote, and even since then, has brought quickly to my mind, is how maybe so many of the problems in our society today are issues themselves, or at least issues exacerbated by a lack of empathy. Spear was able to put herself in the shoes of somebody who is against their greatest wishes and desires to choose a procedure for which most conservatives in America today have chosen to vilify these people. Victims of a tragic medical circumstance, having to make a decision to save their own life because it's too late to hope to save the life of a you know fetus that won't survive, denied communion from their church over that decision, having seriously hateful things said about them behind their back, or from the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. She speaks, uh, in fact, in a radio interview I heard, uh, or a podcast interview, actually, I heard maybe May of last year, about how important it is to be seeking out common ground, especially in this era when the great divide seems too large to even conceive of bridging. She made a point, in fact, of saying that probably most people could, could agree that a candidate for presidential office should share his tax returns, should be transparent with the American people about his financial dealings, that maybe the experience from both the right and left side of the political spectrum in the last four years has persuaded people that financial transparency and the emoluments clause are a good idea, and that maybe nepotism is actually, you know, kind of a bad idea, and that if you try to pass a rule about tax returns and it's buried inside a large bill like HB1 with all kinds of other ideas in it, some far more controversial, that it's going to be awfully hard for you to get agreement about those things. For anyone who might suggest that it's all just talk, it's, a, it's wishful thinking, it's unrealistic, Spear has a small but impressive track record at getting just exactly those kinds of agreements. I'll only cite one from the It's All Political podcast interview that I re-listened to just today, where Spear was kind of pointing out that a turning point has happened very quickly, kind of at the dawn of the Me Too movement, 
that she was able to use to get bipartisan agreement and a bill passed, both in the House and I believe also in the Senate, that would eliminate the financial irresponsibility of the of the U.S. Congress using its resources to cover the sexual harassment sins of its members. Under the bill that she helped lead and that did pass, now if a uh, sitting member of Congress is found guilty of sexual harassment, that member of Congress can no longer force his accuser into arbitration against his or her will, can no longer have what I might describe as an involuntary non-disclosure agreement imposed upon that person. And most importantly, that individual, even a sitting member of Congress or someone in the U.S. Senate, has to pay their own legal bills if they are accused in court and have to defend themselves for accusations and are found guilty of those accusations. It's a good example of the kind of common sense bridges that can be built between the fiscal conservatism on the one hand of saying maybe the U.S. taxpayer shouldn't be paying over and over again for serial abusers of women. And maybe we shouldn't be using the law to force those to put a gag rule on those women and force them not to be able to share their story um, in any sort of open way. The, the things that stop us from shining a light on bad behavior. Spear figured out how to shine the light on the bad behavior. And that light has an amazing way of forcing people to clean up their act. It's, uh, I imagine these and other stories, I haven't read the book yet, can be found in Jackie Spears' book, Undaunted, Surviving Jonestown, Summoning Courage, and Fighting Back. From the moment I heard her speak, having, for some random reason, was watching C-SPAN that day, it's not really my thing, but having heard that speech from the floor of the House of Representatives, I knew that Jackie Spear was the kind of person who could be a different drummer. And the argument in Chapter 4 of this short story about birth control, in my opinion, ties right in. As I've done throughout this uh, serial sharing of the Some Assembly Required novella, I'm going to finish the episode with the end notes. Not a ton from Chapter 4, and all of them, I'm guessing, probably pretty predictable, from the perspective of using endnotes as more of an annotated bibliography to point people in the direction of pop culture references that were made along the way. The first one, Gosh, I Could Have Had a V8, Penthouse Magazine Cartoon, Year Unknown, Probability, 1981-1982, somewhere in there. Tainted Love, sung by Gloria Jones, recorded by Soft Cell in 1981. Der Commissar, sung by Falco and Robert Ponger, 1982. Whippet Baby, sung by the Dance Band, 1981. Cop Killer, sung by Ice-T and Body Count, 1992. He Said He Didn't Want to Marry, from the song Too Young to Date, by D-Day, Year Unknown, could be late 70s, more likely early 80s. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.